0: Thank you. Good morning. I'm Tom DeVinny, and uh, welcome to Bethany. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Bethany United Methodist Church, where we are leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, and to grow in his image. We're glad you're joining with us. Um, Even if we can't physically be present with one another, we can still be connected in spirit. We've been working in a sermon series where we have gone to a number of different locations where Jesus' ministry took place. And uh, this morning it's going to be a little bit different because instead of uh, focusing so much on the location, it's really going to focus on the people the, that Jesus did ministry with. And as we begin, I want to uh, give you a phrase. This is a, a, the Hebrew phrase, am haretz, uh, which is uh, the others, those who are different from us, or as we would say in our day and age, them or they Uh, These are the folks when the Pharisees praying in the temple and he says, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like that one. Uh, Those are the folks, whoever that one or them or they is for you. These are the people that Jesus goes to do ministry with. So I invite you to join with us this morning as we uh, read some of those stories and think about what that says into our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our first story is about calling one of the disciples out of Luke's gospel. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything and followed him. Now, if the name Levi is not familiar uh, to you, you can kind of think that uh, this becomes Matthew uh, later on as he is one of the disciples and he, he's renamed as Matthew. Uh, but here he's still uh, operating as the tax collector. And, you know, I, I know we're technically in tax season. I know it's been delayed, but some of you are already doing it. We've already done our taxes and none of us is really thrilled about doing taxes, although we understand the necessity of it. But a tax collector in Jesus' time is actually a very different thing than a tax collector now would be Uh, this is a a, an Israelite a Jewish man uh, who has contracted with the Roman government to collect taxes for Rome the occupying force Uh, he is collecting the money that's going to pay the officials and the military people who are occupying their country so from the get-go people look at him as a uh, traitor basically to their own people to Israel But there's more to it than that. The way this operated, Levi would have contracted with Rome to be one of their tax collectors. And when he signed that contract with them, Rome would have said, you have this many people in your area, and so this is the amount of money you need to collect from them. Levi would have paid that money up front to Rome. He then would have gone back to his people and collected from them the money needed to reimburse himself for what he paid to Rome, plus any of his expenses. So he actually collected more than the tax to cover his costs. And it was a system that not only was seen as treasonous by the Israelites, but it was also a system that was ripe for abuse and was frequently abused. And tax collectors often became rich at the expense of their own people. So generally speaking, when when folks thought about tax collectors in this day and age, they were thought of uh, very poorly. And the fact that Jesus would would call one would be extremely surprising to to all good Jews in this time and, and in this age. They would have been shocked that this is who he would have reached out to and who he would have called. And yet, it's interesting because when he calls Levi, who's sitting there at the booth collecting the taxes, Levi immediately gets up and he leaves everything. We, we don't know what kind of uh, you know, personal transaction there might have been there, what, what uh, look Jesus might have given him or what Levi felt, but, but something significant happened in that moment because Levi leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Not, not only that, uh, he invites some of his friends over. Uh, Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. Uh, perhaps he's hoping that they will have the same experience with Jesus. Uh, he gave a great banquet, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's interesting. <clears throat> When we think of them and, and they and those, we oftentimes uh, kind of avoid them, not, not simply because they're not like us, but because there's, there's this kind of thing called guilt by association. Uh, we're afraid if we hang out with them that somehow or another we're going to be guilty of whatever they're involved in. And you hear this with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're saying, why, why are you all doing this? Um, To sit at table in this time uh, carries more significance than what it does for us. We share a meal with someone and so forth, and we don't often think of being connected to them in a fundamental way. But in Jesus' day and age, when you shared a meal with people at your table, there was the possibility that tomorrow you might not have enough to eat because you shared your food today. So the sharing of a meal was a significant event. It, was, it was kind of made you uh, family in a way with people who ate at your table. You were connected with them. There was a relationship built in there. And so Jesus sitting at the table with these folks who are considered uh, sinners as well as tax collectors uh, connects him to them and his disciples to them, and the Pharisees and scribes call him out on that. Uh, are these the kind of people you want to be connected with? It's that guilt by association, you know, or do, do you want to do that? It, that might rub off on you. You might, some of their sin might rub off on you, and you might become as guilty as they are. And in some ways, that's kind of the way we are, too, uh, a lot of times in the church. Uh, we're still kind of in that framework where we think, well, you know, Jesus came for us, and, and you know, those other people, you know, they're, they're those other people. And Jesus has a very interesting response. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we understand that with a doctor, right? I mean, that's what we expect medical people to do. We don't expect our doctors to take care of us when we're well and everything's fine. We expect them to be there when people are sick and and need a doctor. We, We understand that, but somehow or another when it comes to spiritual health, we don't get that very well, do we? We tend to think in spiritually that, you know, Jesus is here for those of us that have it all together. And those other folks, you know, that's, that's them. And Jesus corrects that. He said, you know, those of you who are already righteous, who are already spiritually healthy, you know, you're good. He says, I, I've come for those who are broken and for those who are spiritually unhealthy. I, I, I've come to bring wholeness to them and to bring health to them. And sometimes we in the church forget that and begin to think that Jesus somehow or another belongs to us and, and not to other people. And we forget that, you know, Jesus came for them. That in Jesus' world, there's not they and them. Those are the people Jesus has come for, to come to, to bring health and to bring healing to. I mean, it's spiritually true in this story. a uh, next story is uh, about physical healing. Where Jesus is in one of the cities, and there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Uh, in this day and age, there's, there's not really any kind of cure for leprosy, and so uh, it's highly contagious, and, and people tended to avoid anyone who had been infected with that. In fact, if you were a leper and you went into the city, as you went in, you had to tell people, I am unclean. And you had to keep saying that as you went through the city so that people could keep their distance from you and and right now uh, in this day of social distancing uh, I I, you know there's a little bit of a a resonance for some of us with this Uh, I like some of you probably I suffer with oak pollen this time of year and it sets me off a little bit and I was in Walgreens the other day and getting something and all of a sudden I had to sneeze because of all the pollen and everybody around me just kind of stepped back you know (laughs) Uh, you know, oh, don't, don't get too close. And I'm going, no, really, it's just allergies. And they're going, yeah, right. Uh, so, you know, there's that kind of feeling of, oh, we got to keep distance. But, but Jesus reaches out and touches the man. Not only is he not concerned about breaking that social boundary, he's not concerned about breaking that physical boundary. And he touches him and he brings healing and wholeness to him. We tend to, to avoid those who are different or those that we think will, will make us guilty by association or those who might infect us. And, and Jesus keeps showing up and stepping through those boundaries. Sometimes in the Scripture when they use the language sinners, they're talking about formal kinds of uh, categories. People who are uh, unable to worship in the temple Uh, according to the ritual laws of the time, and so uh, different people were were formally classified as sinners, uh, shepherds oftentimes were sinners because they were unable to go to the temple and worship uh, as the rituals uh, called for. Uh, Sometimes people were uh, avoided or them or other than because of physical illness like uh, leprosy. And sometimes they were them or others because of moral kinds of failures in their lives. Uh, And this story centers around a woman who falls into that category. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, uh, some translations will say harlot, uh, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now when they gathered at the table in this day and age, uh, they would have been on the floor resting on pillows around the table reclining on the floor. Only, only folks that, you know, like me were too old to get up off the floor sat in chairs. Everybody else would be sitting on, on the floor. And so as the woman was there washing his feet and anointing him, she would have been very visible to everyone at this table. Uh, they all would have been keenly aware of what she was doing. And, and the host, Simon, the Pharisee, points out to him, do you not realize that this woman is a sinner and she's touching you, that, that guilt by association, as if her sin might infect you? And Jesus points out to him, you know, she loves a lot. She loves much. She's washing my feet with her tears and and anointing them, and and that's the sign that her sins have been forgiven. But, But you, Simon, you haven't had much sin to forgive, and so you love little. Her sins are forgiven. And he pronounces that, you know, your sins are forgiven upon him. I mean, this kind of uh, tension that we live in that, you know, sometimes uh, uh, the people who have their lives together, uh, you know, they don't really necessarily feel that kind of depth of love that others who have really struggled do. And sometimes that leads us to become judgmental and, and look down upon people. I wonder in this story when he talks about the sinners and and in the story where he's at the table with the sinners and the tax collectors and he speaks about that. I wonder if Jesus is thinking really that the greatest sinner at the table at that moment is the woman or the tax collector or, or is it the scribe and Pharisee who just doesn't understand his need yet? I mean, in those stories, uh, you have these uh, dynamics where where Jesus encounters people and, and something amazing happens. Uh, he encounters Levi who leaves behind his tax collecting practices to follow him uh, and, and brings the other tax collectors in the hope that they will also follow him. Uh, you have the leper who receives healing of physical healing of, of body as well as a social reconnection that came with that. Uh, you have the woman who's the sinner who is blessed and is forgiven because of the love that she is uh, feeling and, and expressing to Christ and, and because of Christ's love for her, that forgave her in the first place. And so you have this dynamic where people's lives are being changed by the presence of Christ. Too often when we think about the folks that are them or they, we don't really think they can change. Uh, and in Jesus' day, that's part of why people would, would look down their nose. They, they didn't really think they could change. That's, that's who they are. That's the way it's going to be. And so, you know, the best thing to do is just to avoid them because you didn't want to end up like them. And so there's this kind of tendency we have to do the same thing, to believe that they can't really change. Nothing can happen. In our day and age, the other way we come at that sometimes is we don't really think Jesus can change people. And, and so we reduce him down to kind of a, Uh, You know, a a self-esteem practice. Uh, You know, feel good about yourself. You know, Jesus loves you. You're not really going to change, but Jesus loves you anyway, and so you can feel good about yourself. But in all of these stories, Jesus doesn't come just to make people feel better about themselves. Jesus makes them better. There's a transformation that takes place. There is a change that happens. The brokenness in their lives becomes whole. And Jesus steps in again over and over into those people's lives that we think of as others and brings wholeness to their lives because in Jesus' world there are no others. The next story I want to tell you, I need to give you a little geography to understand it. Um, In this map of Israel, uh, you can see down toward the bottom of the map, the Dead Sea, uh, the body of water, the lake up above that is the Sea of Galilee. You can see the Jordan River connecting them. And about halfway between them, uh, to the left of the river, you can see the city of Shechem, uh, which is also sometimes called Sychar uh, and is currently uh, known as Nablus. Uh, That's the city where Jacob's well was. It's the center of the area known as Samaria. And uh, if you go there now, you can see uh, it sits on top of what's known as Mount Gerizim. And there where Jacob's well was sunk on that mountain, uh, there's a church built over the old well. It's still there, and uh, you can go and see this. These were pictures taken by some of our our group. And the well, uh, you can still draw water from it. People sometimes go here to be baptized or to renew their baptism. Uh, You can still visit this location. It's still active. And the next story takes place at this well. He left Judea and started back to to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. Now, I want to go back to the map for just a minute. When you look at this map going from Judea down around Jerusalem and you're traveling up to Galilee, up near the Sea of Galilee there in the north, the easiest way to make that trip would be to travel over to the Jordan River Valley and go up the valley. That's known as the King's Highway. Uh, It's a fairly level and straight path. The hard way to do that would be to travel cross-country through Samaria because you're walking directly across all the central hill country of Israel. And so to go through the hill country, to go through Samaria, is to take the hard path. It's kind of like if you were in West Texas, the choice between getting on one of our little farm-to-market roads that winds through all the hills, or getting on I-10. If you want to get there in a hurry, you're going to get on I-10. It's the easiest route, it's the most direct, and it's the quickest. So when the scripture tells us he had to go through Samaria, they're not telling you that out of geographical necessity. They're telling you there's a reason Jesus felt he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, Shechem, uh, Nablus, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well It was about noon. Remember, he's going cross country through the hills, so he he really is tired out. It's about noon. It's the hot part of the day. Uh, He's tired, he's worn, and he sits down to rest. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Now, that's, a, that's a kind of a, a, an unusual situation. Uh, the Samaritans and the Jews really didn't have much dealing with each other. Uh, the Samaritans were people, uh, part of the Jewish people that when they came into the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan, had intermarried with some of the locals that were already there. And so the rest of the Jewish population looked down upon them as somehow less than really Jewish. On top of that, the Samaritans believed that the proper place to worship was at Shechem on Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews believed the proper place to worship was in Jerusalem. And so you had this kind of situation where the Jews not only looked down on the Samaritans as less than them, and the Samaritans resented that, uh, but also where they had a strong disagreement about how the proper way was to worship God and where the proper place to worship God was. So there's a very strong uh, kind of conflict between these two groups of people. And you hear that reflected in this. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She's pointing out not only is it that the Samaritan Jewish issue is there, but this is a man speaking to a woman in public that he doesn't know. Uh, In this day and age, if you were in public and you ran across a woman who was not a member of of your family, you did not speak to her. It simply was not proper for a man to do that. And there's actually still parts of the world where that is the case now. You only speak in public to women that you know and are connected to through your family. So she is reminding him of that. She's saying, oh, you know, you are, you are crossing some social boundaries here. Who do you think you are? And Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, "'Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and flocks drank from it?' Again, this is kind of a, you know, who do you think you are Uh, kind of question back to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again.'" But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, there's an interesting thing that's happening in this story. The woman is up the well at the middle of the day. That's not the normal time to draw water. E- even now in places where people have to go and draw water, uh, they go early in the morning when it's cool and they go in the evening when it's cool. Uh, they come early in the morning, they gather the water they need for the things that they're going to do that day, the cooking and the cleaning they're going to do. And they come in the evening and gather water for the cleanup at the end of the day that they need to do. Uh, it's cooler and it works better with the timing of their families. And so these hours in the morning and the evening tend to become social events Uh, the women will come and gather usually the women in most places uh, will come and they will gather at these wells and and they'll have time to visit with one another they'll talk about how's your family what's going on with this person what's going on with that person it's a social event as well as a necessary function the fact that this woman has come in the middle of the day at noon tells us something she's there to avoid the other people She's there because she does not want to interact with other people in the village. She's there because she is outcast from them. She's one of them, those other, even from her own village. And so she's come in the middle of the day to avoid them all. And when Jesus offers her this gift of living water, what she hears is, boy, if I could have that, I don't have to keep coming out here in the middle of the day in the heat to do that. Boy, that would be amazing so give me that water so that I don't have to keep coming out here to draw water in the middle of the day and Jesus said to her go call your husband and come back the woman answered him I have no husband and Jesus said to her you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband what you've said is true And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus speaks to her those words and tells her about herself, she's stunned and probably shocked and taken aback at that. And it's a fairly confrontational kind of thing to say. Uh, And so she's pushing back on him. Oh, okay, I see you're a prophet. So she's going to test that. I'm going to test your prophecy. Uh, Our ancestors, the Samaritans, say you're supposed to worship on this mountain, but your ancestors say that people are supposed to worship in Jerusalem. What do you say about that? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now we sometimes miss what Jesus is doing here. She's challenged Him about, uh, prove that you're a prophet. You know, where's the right way really to worship? And, and, And He's saying something that's entirely different from what most of us will hear. He's telling her, you know... The covenant is being opened up. You know, Up to this point, the Jews were, were God's covenant people of God and salvation came through them. But the day is coming when it's not going to matter if you worship in Jerusalem or in Shechem. What's going to matter is do you worship in spirit and truth? The, the covenant door is being flung wide open. The people are being invited. The love of God is being extended to an even broader group of people all who are willing to come and worship him in spirit and truth. No longer is it limited by location. No longer is it limited whether you're this breed, ethnicity, or that. No longer is it limited to whether you know the right answer. It's whether you are willing to worship in spirit and truth, and the covenant is being opened. And the woman, still struggling with all of this that he's saying, said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. In other words, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he shows up, he'll tell us what's really true. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who's speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? Now, I want you to remember she came out to the well in the middle of the day to draw water because she needed water and she was trying to avoid everyone. She, she's now, she's so excited when he says, I am the Messiah. She leaves the water jar at the well. She has, she's forgotten what she came out there for. She leaves it there. She runs back to the city, to all those people she was trying to avoid. And she says, you need to come see this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done. Is it possible this is the Messiah? And the interesting part, as this story continues on, is that the people in the village believed in Jesus because of the woman's words. It's interesting, this, this conversation, this back and forth where she's trying to kind of test him a little bit, and he's being pretty confrontational in some of what he says to her, and, and at least to me, some things that would sound pretty rough, and, and yet somehow or another in that moment, something changes so fundamental in her that when she goes back to the village... And shares this with the people. They believe in Christ because of the change they see in her. This transformation that takes place. That Christ has worked in her. This wholeness that he's brought to the brokenness of her life. Uh, This renewal of hope within her. That allows her to speak to the people in her village with boldness. Such that they believe in Christ because of her words. I mean, in all these stories, there's a a transformation, a change that takes place. It isn't simply that Jesus shows up to to make people feel better. He shows up to make them better. It's not simply that he arrives and everything stays the same. There's this transformation that happens, and nothing's ever the same again for any of them. Now, in this uh, sermon, in the past when we've kind of worked with this material... We've moved into telling the the parable of the sheep and the goats. I'm going to do that for a minute, although that's really where I'm going to spend most of my time today. Uh, But it goes on to say, you know, that because of that transformation that Christ worked in the woman, she witnesses to the people in the village, and and that's who God calls us to be as followers of Christ. So in Matthew 25, there's a parable called the parable of the sheep and the goats. And uh, Jesus is talking about uh, the judgment at the end of the time. who are members of my family. You did it to me. The piece about the story that I love is whether it's the righteous or the unrighteous in the story, they are oblivious to their actions. Uh, whether they've done it or not done it, they, they, they've been unaware of it. Uh, so the righteous, when he says, Because you did these things for me, they say, well, We don't remember. What, when did we do that? He says, As you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I mean, here we are in the midst of this. Uh, coronavirus situation and we're we're, we're uh, distancing from each other and yet in a lot of ways uh, I, I, I see people reflecting this uh, in that uh, something about this virus kind of levels the playing ground doesn't it uh, all of a sudden we're, we're reaching out to one another and we're caring for one another uh, we're no longer thinking about us and them because really frankly all of us are vulnerable to this and the virus has broken down those barriers because none of us has resistance to it And in the midst of that, it's interesting to me that I see people living out this. Uh, Because the transformation Christ has worked in them, they are reaching out to people around them. Uh, They're sharing with them uh, the blood mobile is outside today gathering blood for people that still need that. Uh, We have people calling people, uh, people riding cars to each other, people helping each other with things. Uh, People are reaching out in ways across boundaries that normally we would not cross. Because somehow or another, this virus has made us realize that there really isn't us and them, there's just us. And so we find that we are reaching out to one another, and I think God's heart is glad to see that happening in the midst of this time, to see us responding in that way. But that response isn't recognized because it comes out of the transformation that Christ works in us, uh, because of the love that Christ has been placing in us. We find ourselves reaching out, not, not consciously, not trying to earn Christ's favor, but reaching out in love because of the love Christ has poured out upon us. Normally that would kind of be the, the, the focus of this, but I, I want you to hear a little bit more from that because a lot of us right now are uh, in social distancing. We're in our homes uh, some of you who are introverts are finding this to be a great time because you don't have to go outside and deal with things. Uh, one of my folks after the last service uh, was talking to me and said, well, you know, the only problem for introverts right now is that the whole rest of their family's in the house with them, so they really are not alone anyway. And I thought, well, I hadn't thought about that. But, uh, you know, for some of us, you know, this being stuck at home thing, uh, you know, is uncomfortable. And all of us are dealing with fear and all of us are dealing with anxiety. All of us are dealing with worry. But But under that extra stress, too, uh, there are folks who are finding that being uh, in their home under that kind of stress is exacerbating things that already were less than wonderful. Uh, Maybe a marriage that was struggling or a relationship with a child that's struggling, or perhaps they're they're wrestling with financial issues in this day and this time, and and they're feeling very much alone and isolated. And, And it's very easy for us to begin to feel like the other because of the things in our life that aren't exactly right that suddenly we're having to deal with and we're coming face to face with. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear very clearly, Christ, there is no other. Christ walks right into that situation. Whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is you're facing, Jesus walks right into that. Not simply to make you feel better, but to bring healing and to bring wholeness to that and bring transformation to that. And if this morning you're feeling like you're isolated and you're the other, uh, I want you to, to reach out to the folks who are on the live chat, and uh, you can uh, talk to them online or you can connect with our prayer ministry. Uh, we want to connect with you in the midst of that. And we want you to understand that, that you're not the other to Jesus, that for Jesus there are no others. There are only the people that he loves, only the people that he comes to bring wholeness to. Jesus isn't interested in just making you feel better. It's about making you better. He's not come to to judge us but to transform us. He hasn't come to condemn us but to save us. And so this morning what I really want you to hear out of this story is whatever you're wrestling with or wherever you're at, uh, Christ is ready to come to your table and to join with you and to bring wholeness and to bring healing to you in this time. In the name of Christ, there are no others. There are only the people of God that God loves. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we give you thanks that you choose to come in the midst of us, that you choose, chose to be born as one of us, to walk into all that we wrestle with and all that we deal with, uh, to come into all of our brokenness and our struggles, and to bring into the midst of that a love that transforms us that brings wholeness and healing to us. And so, Father, we come this morning and we give you thanks that in your eyes we are not the other, but in your eyes we are your beloved people. And we give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.